0: Recently, I was uh, talking with someone here in our church uh, who has a bit of a green thumb, which I didn't know uh, prior uh, to this. And I, w- I was talking with them about how they got into the hobby of of gardening and uh, sharpening that green thumb, as it were. And I I couldn't help but ask, where did you learn how to do all this? I mean, knowing when and what kind of soil to use when you plant, when it comes to harvest. All of this stuff was just, I, I have like brown thumbs. This person had a green thumb. Where did you learn how to do all this? Where do you think they learned? No, they didn't grow up with parents who nurtured that. It was your second guess, YouTube, right? Of course, so before you're going to go to a plant nursery and just grab a bag of seeds and go home and give it the old college try with some dirt and some water and just, you know, see what happens, you're going to probably be wise to talk to someone who has actually done it, who knows the ins and outs of the green thumbing hobby. Or at the very least, you're going to go to YouTube and do that virtually. Okay, what what about this plant? What do I need to know? Same thing if you're going to DIY something with your car. Before you get under the hood and just start looking around and tinkering with stuff, you're going to be wise to go to YouTube or talk to a mechanic. How do you replace this particular part? And they'll walk you through the process. You're going to be wise to learn before you mess with your own thing to learn from someone else that's got experience with their own. That's what I trust we're going to be able to do with the New Testament letter in particular, about the church. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians. There's a particular church that we're going to learn from, from the Apostle Paul. We're going to learn a little bit more about how we ought to be involved and think about our own church and learn from the Apostle Paul, who's going to help us get under the hood of the Corinthian church this church, as we just learned about briefly in Acts 18, was a real church. And this letter that we're going to read is God-breathed, penned by Paul. And the Apostle Paul here is going to address concerns that he has about a real-life church. We're going to get on his YouTube channel, and he's going to show us, this is the things that I had to address with this real-life church. And, and in turn, this should, this will affect your own perspective about our own church? How are we to think about it? How are we to to live and breathe and involve ourselves in our very own church? Now, you might say, well, I'm not a member of the church here. I'm I'm a member of a church elsewhere. Well, this letter then will help you better, more accurately understand that church. Is it biblical? How are you involving yourself in it? What is central to the, the essence of a biblical church? Maybe you're not a part of a church at all, uh, not much of a church goer. Well, this letter, Lord willing, will help you see the significance of maybe changing that about yourself. The significance of being involved in a church and not as an end in and of itself. It's not like the church is this religious, moral, social club that everybody ought to just be a part of and it just makes everybody's life better. There's, it, it's deeper than that. But if you're not much of a part of a church at all, this letter will speak to you. And we'll get at the essence of why church involvement is important. And tonight, Lord willing, in our evening service, we're going to spend time looking at a particular passage within this book. But this morning, what I want us to do is take the eagle's eye view, the flyover of this letter. And, And what we're going to do is we're going to dive down a couple of times to look more closely at what is the heart of this book? What's it all about? And I trust that it's going to be helpful to you later as you would personally read the book yourself. Uh, that's one of, the, one of the reasons why I chose this book for us to look at this morning. If, if you're in a, uh, a, one of the plans that we had talked about earlier in the year, about reading through the Bible, reading through the New Testament over the, cro- the, over the course of two years, if you were doing that uh, in June, you'd be reading the whole month of June through First Corinthians, cycling through that as much as you can. Sometimes it's helpful for you to go, before you walk on the path yourself, to have somebody talk about the high-level overview. What are the things that you're going to need to look for? The things that you'll probably notice. That's what we're going to do, Lord willing, this morning with this particular book. And we're not going to read every word. If we were to do that, it would probably just take you around an hour. Um, That's commendable. But uh, we're not going to do that this morning. But we'll be taking a flyover look but let's pray let's ask for god's help to understand and really apply this to our own hearts and our own church life here this morning let's pray Father we thank you for um, breathing out uh, this letter through the pen of Paul for us uh, we need your spirit to help us understand it to under uh, to, to be able to apply it would you help us uh, see the significance of uh, your Uh, primary mechanism for receiving glory today, uh, the local church. And uh, would you help us to understand that better? And uh, would you help us to be able to uh, make some practical steps to uh, more accurately live it out? We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians, if you're in chapter 1, I want us to look at the very first verse. We're going to kind of get our bearings about this book If you're already familiar with it, this might be review. Um, But if you're not, this will be necessary for us to get our bearings in understanding the book. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 1, we find out who the author is. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Okay, Sosthenes, what's Sosthenes? If we were to continue reading in Acts 18 earlier we're going to find out that in Corinth, Sosthenes was a ruler of a synagogue. So he's probably a former Jew. And he, because of his association with Paul, ended up getting beat by the leaders in that city. So he's, he's an invested member of the church. He's, he's put his life, his body on the line for Christ's sake. So Paul is saying, hey, my brother Sosthenes, we're, we're writing this letter back to you. And it is 2, verse 2, the church of God that is in Corinth, it's not the Corinthians' church. It's not uh, the pastor's church. It's the it's God's church. Very significant. Right out of the gate, Paul is reminding this church that you're not in charge of yourselves. God is the one that you exist to please. God's the one who's done this. Those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. With, though, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right at the beginning, he's already saying, you're God's church, and you're just one of many of fellow saints of God. It, we'll see later, he might be trying to already kind of put them in their place. They might, perchance, possibly be a little on the proud side. And he's saying, you guys are a church that is God's and you're just one of many saints. Now, saints, if you grew up around here, those are canonized saints and we store their bones in various churches and go look at them and we honor them with certain days. But from the Bible's perspective, saints are those who are in Christ and that's who he is drawing. That's what he is drawing to their attention. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's the same word as saint. To be set apart. To be holy. Those that are set apart for Christ's sake. Now, where where is Corinth? Um, we're gonna just a little bit of a review. In the setting. Who's writing? The Apostle Paul and Sosthenes, and he's writing from Ephesus. He's writing from Ephesus. We'll see that in just a second. Who's he writing to? It's the church at Corinth. But where is Corinth? Sometimes we, we, we hear all these Bible names and it's just that fuzzy part of the world over there that we've never been to. Oh, well, Corinth is... See, you recognize one notable feature of that map? The bottom of the boot, right? That's Italy. And so Corinth, I'll just laser point it for you if that helps you, is right here at the bottom of, does anybody know what that is? Greece. Okay. I should have studied better in geography, but um, I had to look this up. This is Greece. And Corinth is on this little, I think it's called an isthmus, this narrow strip of land that connects the bottom chunk of Greece. So that's where Corinth is. Ephesus is kind of over here. Okay. Now, What has happened, this is zooming in a little bit, there's the boot still. Um, In Acts 18, we read about some other people. Timothy and Silas had come there. Um, uh, There were some other people that had come. It was the the tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, the, the Jews got kicked out, so they came from Rome, there's Italy. They came down here. Paul had just been in Athens, he's coming over there. It looks like by land, probably, didn't need to cross through the ocean. And uh, Timothy and Silas are coming way down from Bria, landing right here at Corinth. Now, Corinth at the time, you can even already see from its location, very significant city. It's, it's kind of a crossroads. Even now, there's a channel dug right through there so that you can get from the Aegean Sea, the green line, um, north of that, the Aegean Sea, and save a bunch of time than going around the bottom of Greece. It was was a crossroads for trade, for people to get from, you know, even from Athens, which is a very significant city back in the day, over to throughout the rest of the part of the world, very busy, bustling city. Um, Maybe we could think about it as a Boston or as a New York City. It's a melting pot of trade and money and ideas, philosophy, all sorts of stuff abounded there. But with all of that busyness and bustling and all of the trade, it also included the vices of a very busy city with many people coming from all different parts of the world to come either visit or just to pass through. One of the primary vices of the city was its sexual immorality. In fact, There was a phrase at the time that was referring to any type of sexuality, uh, sexual deviance, you might say, sexual immorality, and that is to Corinthianize. That's how well known this was for that vice. It had a name for it, named after the city, to live like a Corinthian. And that is where in Acts 18 we saw that God called Paul to plant a church. Where's the most sinful place? Corinth, go there and plant a church. And, and even in the passage that we read, it tells us that God plans on saving people that are not yet saved. He says, I have much people here who are my own. God had stuff to do. He has stuff to do around here. I have people that are my own that aren't my own yet, but you need to go find them. And that's what, call, that's what God has called Paul to do here. And so he stays there, uh, as we read earlier, for about a year and a half. And then he moves on, Paul does, to Ephesus. And uh, Ephesus, um, that's a little bit about uh, what Corinth is. Ephesus, if we were to read the, uh, the end of this book to the first, first Corinthians, at the very end of the book, um, that's where Paul's actually writing from. He mentions that in particular he he had been there for three years um, after visiting this church that we that we've read about in Acts eighteen. He goes to Ephesus. He's there for three years. It's probably near the end of his time there in Ephesus that he's heard some stuff about and he's heard some rumors, you might say, and he's also received a letter from them with some questions. We'll see that. And so it's probably A.D. 53, 55 or so. So we're, we're talking um, 20 to 25 years after Christ's death. Very early on in the life of the early church. And he's actually written to this church before. Okay, that's weird. This is called 1 Corinthians. Look at Look at chapter 5 and verse 9. 5 and verse 9. We'll be looking at this closer later, but... Uh, chapter 5 and verse 9 he says I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people Okay, and there's more context that we'll look at in a little bit about that so really I guess you could say we're reading 2nd Corinthians and there's even argument that there was a third letter and then a fourth letter which is our 2nd Corinthians Okay, confusing but it was not God's choice to, to breathe out for us to have today this first letter that's been written all that to say, he we know that he planted the church. He spent a year and a half there, and he's had some correspondence with them. Okay? So this is the second Corinthian church letter. The more we learn about this church, it's no wonder that he had to write to them multiple times. Okay? But understanding the city and its location in the world at that time, it is understandable that they would have had a lot of issues. Where they live, the center of the pit of sin, Okay, it's going to be naturally prone to having problems. Some of the things that this book is more well known for, maybe you think of church discipline, chapter 5. Maybe you think about marriage, 1 Corinthians 7. Um, If you're thinking about marriage questions, divorce, what are you supposed to do if a wife, if if, not a wife, a, a spouse is an unbeliever? What if you're single? What if you're married? That's the chapter about that. Um, The Lord's Supper is in 1 Corinthians 11. Gifts, how they're good, how they can be abused. Um, What about love? The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. That's in this chapter as well. The resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. There's a lot of notable things that find their heart right here in this letter. But how do all those issues fit within the whole of the book? How does the letter lay out? If you were to read through it, what are you going to notice? First of all, you're going to notice the first part of the book is addressing reports about the church. Go back to chapter 1, verse 11. You'll notice this. Chapter 1, verse 11, early in his introduction here to his letter, he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, It has been reported. So he's been hearing stuff. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Okay, He's been hearing reports about the church, so he's going to need to be addressing those. The latter half of the book is really questions that they have asked him. And so the last half, chapter seven, all the way to the end, is addressing questions from the church. We're going to get to that um uh, the this repeated phrase um, now uh, now concerning this, you said this now I'm going to proceed to answer that That's how the the book in 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 broad strokes lays out now, are there any concerns? That that lie at the root of all these issues. He's heard problems, these reports, and now they're asking questions about other things. There's a bunch of issues that he's going to draw attention to, but what lies at the root of those? We're going to note that about halfway through the book, but with this overview of the book, it's almost like we want to scope out a hike. If we're going to scope out the hike, we're going to take we're going to take this outline. Okay, this outline is the trail. If you're going to walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, this is the path. But throughout the path, you're going to notice a couple of different kinds of trees along the way that keep on showing themselves up. That end up being the themes of the book. That end up being the root causes, the root concerns, you might say, that Paul has about the the problem, the, the significance of all of these issues that they've got. So these reports about the church, one of the first things we see in the first four chapters is that there's issues. We just read verse 11. I heard that there is quarrelings among you, my brothers. Even up in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, because apparently they weren't, and that there be no divisions among you. The divisions among uh, over these things were first over personalities. They were fighting a lot, and, it, and its root was that there was personalities that they were following. Verse eleven of chapter one. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarrelling among you, my brothers. Verse twelve. What I mean, in case you're wondering, is that each of you says, "I follow Paul." Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, or the the moral high ground. How are you gonna outdo this one? I follow Christ. There was a bunch of division about who was the best leaders to follow, and they had the right emphases. We're gonna follow them. Chapter two and verse five, he's gonna mention this again. He's writing and he says that your faith might not might not rest in the wisdom of men. You guys are so man following, he says, but in the power of God. Chapter 3, verse 21, he says a bunch of stuff. So, that, so let no one boast in men. That was at the root of their division. Verse 6 of chapter 4. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. There's lots of division, and it had its root in who they were following who their special leaders were. And so what Paul's going to do in the first four chapters is argue for two things that transcend, or you might say correct, these divisions, these divisive problems. The two things are the gospel message. The gospel message is going to transcend these personality followings that you guys are dividing over. And then also gospel ministry is going to transcend these petty, divisive, uh, personality following problems. The first one. So he's going to, he's going to cycle through these divisive problems. There's three problems. We're going to look at it through the lens of the gospel message. And then he's going to mention the three problems again. This time, let's look at it through the lens of gospel ministry. Number one in verse 17 through 25, the gospel message transcends personalities. We just read some of those, um, Just a second ago, after mentioning some of the specific personality followings, Apollos, Paul, uh, Peter, Jesus, verse 16, he answers that by noting gospel power. Verse 17 of chapter one, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He tries to get their attention off of these personalities that they're dividing over and back onto the gospel that transcends that. Secondly, the gospel message also transcends pride. The, the end of uh, uh, verse 26 all the way to the end of the chapter The gospel eliminates, it transcends any reason for pride. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He's just obliterating the pride that is underneath of all these personality followings. Verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The gospel message, rightly understood, is going to eliminate, it's going to kill pride, which is what this Corinthian church was full of. The gospel message also in chapter 2 transcends human wisdom. It transcends human wisdom. The first 16 verses of chapter 2 Paul is humbly going to admit his own lack of human impressiveness. Paul, Paul is, Paul is demonstrating the humility that he wants them as a church to have as well. Verse one. And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Um, Verse four, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Which was a really significant thing to the to the um, in Greece and in particular in Corinth and Athens, not plausible words of words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the spirit and a power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, "Look, look at me. <laughs> I am no human reason according to your your culture's version of wisdom. Look at me." I, I, I bring nothing to the table when it comes to human wisdom or human awesomeness. And really, this was opposite the conventional wisdom of the day. To be compelling back then, you needed to be philosophically and oratorically sophisticated. You need to be able to hold a crowd just with your crafty and, and, and effective communication. One, one scholar's research said that the Greeks were intoxicated with fine words. And to them, the Christian preacher with his blunt message seemed a crude and uncultured figure to be laughed at and ridiculed rather than to be listened to and respected. Some things never change, I guess. Would you say that that uh, articulates our culture's uh, view of Christianity, the simple, exclusive, bigoted gospel? That's what they think about the truth of God's word. So when we're tempted to soft-pedal the gospel, to kind of downplay our involvement in a church, um, we need to remember that if we're trying to make winsome, or, or if we're trying to beautify or make convincing the gospel, you'll never be able to go far enough to please those who think it's foolishness in the first place. The gospel will always be foolishness to those that don't have the indwelling spirit that's why it's kind of counterproductive when when you're trying to win over your unbelieving friends by 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 canceling the stuff that you know is important at church to do stuff with them they weren't going to get it anyway so why try to win them over with things that the spirit hasn't given them new life to understand you're you're essentially delegitimizing your own beliefs by showing that all the things in your life are on par with church. It's all kind of the same. You choose church, and that's good for you. But we all sorts—we have all sorts of different things. You're sucking the the convincingness out of your belief in the gospel by letting church be something that's, you know, give it or you know, take it or leave it. To them, it would actually make more sense for you to be committed to something that is ex- is as exclusive and life altering as the gospel. Well, the, you know, they they just won't think. They're not going to understand. They might think it a little odd for me to be so committed to the church or for, for me to actually articulate the gospel and, and, and how it's eternal separation from God. They're not going to get it, you know? No, they're not going to get it because they don't have the Spirit of God. So let's, let's believe that and not try to win them with plausible words of man's wisdom because it's only going to be foolishness. The gospel has a power in its simplicity. And so might as well be consistent in your commitment to Christ and his church. than try to win over the one who doesn't accept the things of God because they don't have the spirit of God, as Paul says. The apostle Paul was going to simply proclaim the gospel and let the spirit demonstrate its power and its truthfulness. The gospel message transcends human wisdom. And then the second lens through which he attacks these problems is that of ministry. Ministry transcends personalities. That's much of what chapter 3 is focusing on. Verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This is probably one of the only instances, instances in the New Testament that believers are referred to as fleshly, people of the flesh. And it's a little bit perplexing why he does that. Why would he call them people of the flesh? Look at verse three. This is why. Verse three, for you, um, and even now you're not ready to to handle the, the, the meatier things, he's saying, for you are still of the flesh. He says it again. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Why did Paul refer to them as fleshly? It's because they were fighting. Their their divisiveness, the jealousy and strife that was coming out of all this personality following... That was warrant for him to say, you guys are behaving like those that don't even have the spirit. You're behaving like just anybody else would. Then he describes the various ministries of these personalities. Because they were, remember, they were following all these different personalities. And so he's like, okay, let's talk about some of those personalities as it relates to ministry. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Okay, you're a little mini cult followings. Who are those people? They're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Each of them have different jobs. And that's okay. He's saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God's the one that gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We're all on the same team. We're all doing little different aspects of what God wants us to do. And he's the one that's giving the growth. So stop fighting is, is what he's really getting at. Ministry properly understood its diverse nature. God has called different people to do different things. And they're involved in different ways. Some of them significant, so to speak. Some of them not. We'll, we'll see that later in the book. But if, we will, if we're going to understand ministry the way God wants us to... We will adequately, but not overly, appreciate the ministry of all of God's people. Why would we be shooting at other people in God's vineyard that are doing another aspect of ministry instead of just blindly and divisively following our own cult following, you might say. That's what Paul is trying to demonstrate. I did some things, and God's using that. Another person did some things, and God's using that. He's the one that's over it all. Ministry also transcends pride. Ministry also transcends pride. What he gets at, God knows everything and he's the judge of everything. So don't, verse 6 of chapter 4, try to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Ministry transcends pride. If if I rightly understand ministry, I'm going to rightly believe that God has given me everything that he has. Whatever abilities and effectiveness I have in various aspects of ministry... God gave that to me in the first place. So I have no reason for pride. Pride. What do you have that you didn't receive? And then lastly, he gets back to human wisdom. Ministry transcends that as well. And he finishes out chapter four that way. He spends some time, really, if you're reading through it, uh, speaking sarcastically. And uh, um, he's comparing the apostles' suffering with the Corinthians' wealth and ease and their supposed wisdom. And he says, I, I wish I didn't have to talk to you this way, but I'm, I'm having to try to spell this out for you. Did you see how foolish your own human wisdom is? How much you're camping out on how awesome you are? And here we apostles are preaching the gospel. We were the foundation of the church in a sense, and we're poor, and we're being buffeted for this, and we're being ridiculed for this. He's using some sarcasm in there. And then what he's getting at is that Ministry is going to transcend human wisdom. Their wisdom and comfort was being puffed up over against the ministry of the apostles. So in the first four chapters, if, if we're thinking correctly about the gospel, if we're thinking correctly about ministry, divisions are going to start to melt away. Because the personality following, the pride, the human wisdom that fuel that division that will be absent if we're thinking rightly about the gospel and if we're thinking rightly about ministry. The second thing that he had heard about, it has been reported, is in chapter 5. And that is uh, the more infamous uh, part of this book, Tolerance of Immorality in the Church. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. It is actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, even in your own city, this is kind of like crossing the line. For a man had his father's wife. And rather than being ashamed of that or kind of embarrassed about it, verse two, and you are arrogant, ought you rather, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And th- this might seem baffling to us. Would a church really be proud or like boasting of the fact that they have this very bad version of sexual immorality in the church. Perhaps they were taking the grace of the gospel too far. In other words, that that Romans five Romans six discussion that Paul has in another book, they were thinking, well, there's sin here and we're just going to magnify God's grace with it. Look how much grace we have, but they were taking it too far because it was tolerating sin not doing something about the sin. The problem was that they, the the grace that they were perhaps touting wasn't calling sin to repentance. Verse six of chapter five, your boasting is not good. Okay, he's being pretty clear, isn't he? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So you need to get this sin out of the church. It, it was muddying the purity of the church. If you're going to tolerate sin, it's just going to fester. It's going to spread the way leaven does in bread. Verse 9 and 10, the, the, the serious problem was that the one who bore the name Christ follower or Christian was continuing in public sin. That was the seriousness. Verse 9. For I think that God, I'm sorry, that wrong chapter, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would have, you would need to go out of the world. The problem wasn't the sin in and of itself. Because, well, for an unbeliever to persist in sin, that's... Kind of to be expected, right? We should be welcoming people into our lives and into our church gatherings that don't know the Lord. And they might have all sorts of manner of issues. Of course they do. They don't have the spirit. But for a believer that, proclaim, that, that says, I'm a Christian, to persist in unrepentant sin is not to be expected. It's not to be tolerated. They're deluding the testimony of the collection of Christ followers. That's why he says, purge out, purge the evil person from among you. Very serious, very instructive for us. We must not tolerate unrepentant sin among those that are Christ followers. That's how serious the nature of our testimony before a watching world is. Then... The next thing that he does before he moves to the second half of the book, he talks about litigation suing fellow believers before a watching world. We're not going to take a lot of time. He is, he's really addressing the problem, really the incongruity, you might say, of believers taking one another to court. How bad of a testimony that is before unbelievers. Verse 8 of chapter 6, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Verse nine, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's a footnote that you could also translate that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's almost like he's saying, you're doing wrong. Don't you know that wrongdoers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, such were some of you. He lists out what unbelieving wrongdoers do. Then he says, such were some of you. A lot of times, we often quote this verse as seeing it as almost like an encouragement. Like, there's that list of all the, you might say, serious sins, and you know what? But you've been saved. This is so encouraging. Look at the collection of people that once were doing this, and now they're doing that. That's encouraging. But in this context, really, he's saying, um, look at all the kinds of people God saves. Um, You've been saved from all of that, but you're behaving as if you haven't been saved from it. You're going back to it. So he's really using that to rebuke them. You're going back to the thing that you were redeemed from. That doesn't make sense. Don't live like the world in that way. So he's been addressing reports about the church. Now, what are the things, if you're if you're walking through the woods of 1 Corinthians, what are the the, the underlying root concerns that he has with these three things that he's been dealing with Paul's addressing these reports first of all you maybe you already picked up on it he says it early in the book he's concerned about unity he's concerned about unity there's all these divisions over personalities pride you're suing one another um, at the very beginning, he says, Chloe tells me, Chloe's people tell me that you're arguing, you're quarreling with each other, start agreeing, stop fighting with each other. Unity is a primary concern of Paul's that he mentions along the way. And these, in addition to other things, are deluding something before a watching world. If you're fighting about a bunch of things, remember chapter three, you're of the flesh, you're fighting. If that's true, then... You're deluding the purity of the church. You're messing with the pure testimony that believers are to have. Purity is that second concern. Do you not know, verse 16 of chapter 3, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's getting back to this issue of purity. The one that was involved in sexual immorality in chapter 5. Let him who has done this be removed. Purge out this unrepentant sin. Chapter 6. Keep yourself pure because you individually are, are, you individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. Purity is a primary concern of Paul's. And what is this purity for the sake of? What's the purpose of all this? It's God's glory. Look at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1. We didn't read through everything, but this will be helpful for us to understand this significant theme, concern of Paul's. Chapter 1, verse 26. Notice how much God is over and the purpose of all. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's kind of putting them in their place, right? They need to be. Verse 27. But God chose... What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This was God's idea. If something great comes out of something that was really humble and insignificant, God gets the glory for that. Verse 30, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written he quotes jeremiah let the one who boasts boast in the lord if if you are unified if you are purified then god is glorified from that who in chapter 3 is the one who gives the increase it's god what do you have that you didn't receive chapter 4 that was all rhetorically understandably from god So you could say the theme of this book, the theme for your life in your local church ought to be a church being unified and purified is going to result in God being glorified. That's why unity and purity are so essential, according to Paul. So we'll notice this as we cruise through a little bit more quickly, the second half of the book, the questions that come to Paul. Look at chapter 7. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. We're tipped off to the fact that they asked these questions with a little phrase. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he's going to continue on. Chapter 8 verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Chapter 12 verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. So all those other now concernings are related back to the things that they had written to him about. The first thing that he is concerning, that concerns him, that they had asked him a question about in chapter 7, is marriage. We're not going to dig too deeply into it, but the first question that he gives, that he's responding to, is marriage. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then or if you're looking at an English Standard Version, it puts it in quotes. It helps to understand, this is the thing you were asking. This is the thing that you thought was right. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to correct that a little bit. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they were writing to him, asking him about. Some translations might render this, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But, and so maybe maybe in you know a Christian school handbook. This is like the reason why, you know, no physical contact between opposite genders. You know, this is the verse that's cited. Maybe that's a good principle to have in certain contexts, but this is not the verse to use for that. Even the rest of the context makes sense. What he meant by touch wasn't just physical contact. It was sexual contact. Okay? That word touch has more than one sense, and one of which is the one that the ESV renders it. And so... It was the, the issue of the day, the sexual immorality, Member to Corinthianize, that's how significant was this problem. It was so bad that some might have been concluding, you know what, let's just not even do it at all. Married, not married, just, just forget it. It's so bad, it's so misused, it's so perverted that we're just not going to do it at all. This is what they said to him uh, that they wrote to him about. And so what Paul does for the rest of the chapter is he offers clarification and encouragement to those that were married and to those that are unmarried. And so there's, there's a lot that you can uh, mine out of that chapter. They also wrote to him chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 1, Christian liberty. Now concerning food offered to idols. And then he proceeds, there's a lot, that could be a whole half a year series is chapters 8, 9, and 10. We're not going to do that, but it's ultimately the issue of, do I have a right to do something? Ought I to do it just because I have a right? Or are there there are other principles that I need to be considering with regard to my supposed right to do certain things. Christian liberty, chapters 8 through 10. And then chapter 11, this is an issue of church life. There's the first half of the chapter. There's the cultural context, I would say, of head coverings for a woman. And then the second half of the verse, the second half of the chapter, is instructions regarding the Lord's Supper. And it was a big mess there at the Church of Corinth. There was selfishness. The rich people were bringing their fancy big feasts to the church while the poor people are sitting there watching them. It, It was a big disorganized, selfish mess. And so he says... This is how I want you to do stuff and stop the selfishness. Okay. Chapter 11, chapter 12 through 14 is the idea of these gifts of the spirit. Now concerning spiritual gifts, he says in chapter 12 and in, in, uh, verse seven, he notes that everyone in the church has a spiritual gift to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Verse 11 The Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what's the the purpose of the gift that you have been given? If you're a a Christ follower, part of a church, the the purpose of that gift is to benefit the body of Christ of which you are a part. Look at uh, verse 26 and 27. Verse 26 and 27 of chapter 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If, if, if there are members that are suffering, we're going to all suffer together. If there are members that have had great blessing, if they're, if they're honored, we're going to all be thankful for that. We're going to rejoice with that. That's unity. That's unity demonstrated when all of us have different gifts and bring different things to the table And we're all thankful for it and not looking down our noses or up in stubbornness at others that have different gifts that we wish ours was more noticed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, if we're all using them and thankful for them and thankful for others using them, there's a unity that pleases God. And there's really a sub theme -theme from chapter eight all the way through chapter 14. And that is the chapter that I skipped over, verse uh, chapter 13. That's the heart of it. Remember the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? Essentially, in chapters 8 through 14, he's saying, let love, not freedom, govern your church life. Let love, not freedom, govern your church life. There was a lack of love for one another in this church that was starting to divide this church. So so between your brothers and sisters in Christ, don't make your agreement with one another the, the sieve that allows you to get close to someone. Because if if agreement on every little issue with someone is the sieve, you're going to be bouncing from friend to friend to friend. Because there is probably not another person on earth that you agree with every single iteration of the Christian life on. So love is going to love past those Differences that we are all bound to have. Love loves past petty disagreements and differing perspectives. Verse 24 of chapter 10, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And that's that's really the context of this whole book beautifies the love chapter even more. Because it was right smack dab in the middle of a messy, disunified church that they were going to need to start fleshing out what true Christ-like love really was. Spending day-to-day, real time with real people in a real church. And it's interesting that love, noteworthy, is is that love is not just action. We hear, you know, love is self-sacrificing for the good of another. But if there is not the inner disposition of the heart... The beginning of 1 first, uh, first Corinthians 13 says, you can do all sorts of amazing things and do, do, do. But if there's not love, it doesn't mean anything, right? Isn't that what he says? Even if I can use my gift like an angel can and I can do all these amazing things, um, but I have not love, I gain nothing. It's action and it is inner disposition of the heart especially in a church context, of all, of all groups of people that are out there, a church, a biblical church, let the lens through which you look at others be how they how that other person is or is not showing love to me. Let your lens through which you look at other people be how am I not or how am I showing love to other people? You see how it's others focused and not me? If only people would... Meet my needs more, that's a selfish version of love. That's a self-love. But a biblical love is looking at others and saying, you know what, I need to start showing love to that person. I've noticed it, the Lord's brought it to my mind, and I haven't done anything about it. I need, I need to be more loving to that person. That is the biblical understanding in this context that Paul has in mind. Chapter 15, the famous gospel resurrection chapter. Resurrection implications. We might look a little bit more at that tonight, Lord willing. Uh, a, a verse, a passage out of this particular passage, a large chapter, the resurrection, and then lastly, chapter sixteen, now concerning the collection for the saints. And so he talks about getting ready for Paul's arrival. He was intending to come to them, get things in order, let let everything be done decently and in order. He's mentioned earlier. He's he's fleshing that out here in in gathering a collection. Even with the questions that the Corinthian church members keep on bringing up to Paul, he keeps on coming back to those core concerns that he he mentioned at the first half of the book, doesn't he? A church being unified and purified results in God being glorified. If you're going to get under the hood to look at a problem, you're going to analyze it, you're going to learn more about it, but you never actually replace the bad part, that's an exercise in futility, foolishness. What do you need to do to be a part of what Paul says you need to be a part of? Maybe, maybe you're not even a part of the church. Maybe, maybe you're not a church member. Maybe you're not a church goer. First question would be, have you experienced that gospel that Paul described at the early part of the book that actually transforms a life? Maybe you have heard the facts of the gospel, you've analyzed it, you've heard somebody talk about it, and, and th- realize that you are a sinner, that you are separated from God. You're, as Christ said in John 3, you're condemned already. You know the facts of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, that he was raised from the dead. Maybe you know that in your head, but maybe you've never personally actually relied on Christ, as your only hope of salvation, maybe you're generally good deeds. You're thinking, well, "I'm generally a good person. You see how focused on yourself that is? Is your own goodness really worth staking your eternity on? If you're not sure about that, if you don't know for sure that you have the righteousness of Christ on your account? Please talk to someone, talk to me, talk to a friend that brought you. Understand, really, have you personally embraced the gospel? Maybe you are in Christ. Maybe you're a Christ follower. You're a Christian. Are you thinking biblically about the church? Are you contributing to its unity? Are you contributing to its purity? Maybe you, just like everybody else, just like every other human on earth, you come to the church with the same mindset as everyone else. What can the church do for me? I'm going to view the lens of my church through how well it serves me. Are you bothered when, when you're asked to serve too much? Are you, are you serving at all? You know, the, the less you serve, the more someone else is having to. Right? The less you commit yourself to gathering here, the less encouraged we are by your absence, the less encouraged you are by your own absence. But by the same token, the more you commit yourself to our gatherings here as a local church, the better we are for it, the better you are for it. And ultimately, according to Paul, the better you could say it this way, God is for it. God is getting more glory as you are investing yourself in what he has said is significant. Is most important. Are you contributing to its unity? Are you contributing to its purity? By God's grace, commit yourself to being a part of the unity and the purity of a church so that God would get more glory. Let's pray.